Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature synthetic biology and bionic vision. First, there was a bionic ear with the invention of the cochlear implant so that the deaf could hear. Associate Professor Greg Swanning from the Graduate School of Biomedical Engineering at the University of New South Wales spoke to me about the development of the bionic eye. We've been funded by the Australian federal government to build a bionic eye for Australia by the year 2014. That's a very short amount of time. It is. Uh, so we're working very hard. It's actually uh, not that short of, of a period of time if you consider when we started the project, which was about 1997. And uh, we began our work at the University of New South Wales there and started working with a very large funded project last year, 2010. Where is the bionic eye now? And then later, perhaps, where you expect to get to by 2014? At this point in time, we believe we have all of the technology sorted. So the very difficult tasks of building microchips and keeping those microchips safe from the body and keeping the body safe from the microchips, all that, all that sort of thing, we believe we have completely nailed. And uh, we're, we're ready to start with human trials uh, as soon as we can uh, get that that organized. Uh, the first trials will take place in Melbourne and uh, we have a, a, a team of very talented surgeons down there that have perfected the, the methodology of, of getting this device into the, uh, in, to be able to interface with the retina. So this device will be inserted, what, behind the retina? It, it's behind the retina. We're calling this a suprachoroidal device. Uh, and what that means is there's, a, there's the white part of your eye, the outside of your eye, and just beneath that is the choroid, which is a very vascular structure that has uh, lots of blood flow in it. It's a very nice place in between that sclera, the white part of the eye, and the choroid to place a man-made object, such as an electrode array. The, uh, the eye is very tolerant in that particular area. Uh, we're not directly contacting nerve cells which are extremely fragile and can very easily be damaged. So while we're one step away from where we really need to be, which is at that neuron level, uh, the, the trade-off of being slightly further away in relation to protecting the nerves that we're trying to stimulate is, uh, I think we're on the right track with that. The same sort of thing has happened with cochlear implants. We're one step away from really where you should be if you're going to directly interface with neurons, but you're far enough away to protect the electrode, uh, to protect the neurons, etc. And it's still very effective. This is the part that receives the signals, is that right? That's inside right. the retina, and it's receiving signals like the cochlear implant from an outside sensor. That's correct. So in a, a cochlear implant for deaf people, you uh, you have a microphone, you, you hear a sound through that microphone or the electronics uh, hear that sound, and they process that sound in some very clever ways that get better and better and better as time progresses. Uh, the same sort of thing happens with, with the bionic eye, but instead of a microphone, we use a camera. So we acquire an image from what the person would normally have seen, and we process that, that image and effectively pixelize it, uh, make it into a number of dots with a certain intensity of each one of those dots, and form a pattern of vision uh, using, that, using the electrode array and that combination of the, the acquired image and the processed image. So it'll be sort of like a black and white 
dot matrix sort of image? More or less, yes. Uh, we arrange our electrodes in a, a hexagon pattern, so it's a little bit staggered, so lines and columns, uh, rows and columns really don't apply in that particular instance. But um, but yes, for first-order approximation, yes, that's uh, it's a bunch of dots. And uh, we believe that if, if you take the example of a, a, a train where you uh, are looking at a dot matrix display to tell you what station there is, there's a, there's a huge amount of information that could be conveyed to the patient or the person that was wearing this device uh, with such a, such a uh, situation. Uh, we hope that someone could be able to find doors where um, there might be a step. They could figure out where the step is, uh, avoid obstacles, and, and realize when there's a person that's coming close to them and maybe that's someone they know and, and maybe something about the shape of their face or shape of their body might actually tell them who that is. Uh, we're not quite sure if uh, facial recognition is something that's on the cards for the immediate future, but uh, certainly shapes and, and doorways and things that will aid in navigation uh, are, are what we're hoping to achieve. So do you think it'll supplement the cane or could it replace the cane? It's uh, it's a very competitive situation with the cane, with the white cane. Now, the white cane has served people very well for many, many years. I, I can't remember, but I think it's about 100. And uh, that device is hard to compete with. We think it will augment what people can find with the cane. I think uh, people that have lived with the cane for a long time would be reluctant to give it up because they, they sense things in a uh, tactile way rather than a sensory way um, or a visual way rather. Uh, when they're at the train station they can find the edge of the platform, they can find the, uh, the strips, the ripple strips where, where the trains actually are and that's probably going to be hard for someone to give up and trust entirely the, uh, the electronics but we hope someday that it'll, it'll become something that the people can rely on and uh, be beneficial enough so that they could give away the cane. Where do you think it'll be in 2014? 2014? Uh, well, with the, the electronics and the, the packaging and all the, the electrode arrays and all, all of the things that we've been working on really in place now and, and waiting for the opportunity to be placed in humans, it's that device that's going to be in there. So we really know what, it, what the device looks like. Now, how the device is going to perform, that's going to be probably the most interesting day of my life when they, when we switch that on. Uh, what we're going to find, we hope, is that uh, people get what are called percepts or these see these spots of lights on every one of the electrodes. That's, that's something that uh, people around the world working on similar projects have been very, uh, had, had a really tough time doing. So you have a device in America that's 60, 60 channels and not everyone sees 60 channels of of spots or 60 spots, uh, it, uh, for the for the most part, f several less than than that, and maybe not even a useful number in in some cases. So we hope that everybody is going to see at least a spot for every electrode. We really hope that we'll be able to put spots in between those electrodes by doing some clever things with steering currents and things like that, and and maybe being able to make a what's a hundred channel electrode array into something that can convey better vision than than 100. Uh, we also have the capacity to use eye movements and head movements and incorporate that into the into the vision. And where you might look at 100 dots and things, well, you really can't see much with that, but jitter the image around and you can actually see the edges and you can see the fine detail if you jitter it enough. And we're working on ways to incorporate that into our image processing strategies. And what sort of people will be suitable to be your first subjects for these sort of implants? All right, so uh, there are a number of diseases that attack uh, the visual system in different ways. 
One of them is retinitis pigmentosa, and another one is age-related macular degeneration. Those two diseases, if there's anything nice to be said about them, and there really isn't, but if, if there's anything nice to be said, they do leave the optic nerve intact and some of the nerve cells that are associated with the optic nerve called the retinal ganglion cells. Now, if there are retinal ganglion cells that are alive in the retina, we can actually electrically stimulate those nerves and convey a signal down the optic nerve, and hopefully that's interpreted as vision. As I recall, when the cochlear implant was very new, they couldn't just put it in any deaf people. They had to go for people who were profoundly deaf. Will it be the same for blind people? That's correct. So in the very first generation of these devices, uh, the patients would have a great deal to lose if they had any vision whatsoever. So if even, even a small proportion of what's left of their retina, if they can see with that, we wouldn't want to risk the possibility of them losing that because it's by far going to be more remarkable than what we can provide with this, uh, uh, with this device. So profoundly blind patients are what we would be seeking for the first, first trials. And also, I recall fro- again from the bionic ear um, research that although the sound range that the people were getting wasn't the same as what your ear would give you, adults who were implanted with them found that their brains adjusted and they heard normal sound as, as a type of illusion. Mm-hmm. Is that something that might happen for the blind patients? We certainly hope so. The, the brain is this remarkable organ that, that can take information, even little tidbits of information, and fill in the blanks in between. Uh, cochlear implant patients, uh, I think, very regularly feel as though that the people they knew before they went deaf sound the same as they, as they did originally, even with a device that only has really 22 different spots of stimulation and really can't convey that sort of tonal information. So it's the brain that's filling in the blanks there. Now, we certainly are, are almost counting on that, this happening in, uh, in a vision prosthesis or bionic eye. And we hope that the people that, uh, that are fitted with these devices can progressively learn more and more and more about what this device is telling them. Uh, we probably don't have very, big high, or very high expectations about when we first switch this on, other than the Hopefully, they'll be able to see dots. But what they make of those dots, I think over time, they could be remarkable what they can see with that when you take into consideration the eye movements and the jitter and, and how the brain can process all of that and put it, put it all together into a relatively high-resolution picture of the, of the world. So the cameras that people will be using for, with these implants, would these be on glasses? Yes. Uh, in fact, today we just had a, a, a meeting to discuss how, how that's going to look. And uh, at, at the moment, the design is that it sits on, on the, a pair of glasses, but basically on the arms of the glasses. So the arms will be slightly wider than normal, and these tiny little cameras will point forward and look at the visual scene uh, in the same way that an eye would look. Uh, One of the drawbacks of that is that uh, you can't incorporate eye movements directly into that. So we're looking at some other techniques to pick up where the eye is actually looking and hopefully be able to feed that back into the image processing. So do you think the camera might actually move with the eye or would that be more processing? Uh, It'll be more processing. So what we'll do is take a large picture. We'll take a high-resolution picture of of a a large area, not a fish eye, but a wide screen and uh, look where the eye is pointing and take that region of interest of, the, of that image that we take and, uh, and process that down to the number of dots that are, are on the electrode array. So where does the funding come from? When the Labour government was, uh, was elected, there was a, a conference called the 2020 Summit. And the 2020 Summit uh, wanted to find the direction of where Australia should be by the year 2020. One of the key ideas that came out of that conference was the capacity of Australian scientists to, to be able to make a bionic eye. 
And so that was funded. I believe it's the only idea that actually came out of that uh, that conference in science that that was funded already. Uh, there may be other in, others in the pipeline, but uh, we received $50 million, or the project as a whole received $50 million from the Australian Research Council. $42 million of that went to Bionic Vision Australia, with whom I'm, I'm associated, and another group at uh, Monash University was put together to look at uh, a cortical stimulator for people that couldn't benefit from our device because their optic nerves are no longer intact. So I think it's a very wise uh, approach that's been taken. It sort of covers all bases. Everyone is uh, is quite reasonably well funded, certainly not on a commercial level, but for a scientific level, this is a, a remarkable grant. Greg Swanning, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That was Associate Professor Greg Swanning from Bionic Vision Australia, speaking to me about the Bionic Eye. The Melbourne Research Group, developing a Bionic Eye interfacing with the brain instead of the retina, are based at Monash University. You can find out more about Bionic Vision Australia at bionicvision.org.au Also at bionic.gsbme.unsw.edu.au Or search for the keywords Bionic Eye Australia. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Having developed your bionic eyes and your bionic ears, what about the rest of biology? In 2010, Craig Venter, the man who sequenced his own genome, sequenced a bacteria and then constructed the genes in its DNA from lab chemicals. Genes are made up of four letters in the nucleotide alphabet. Guanine, adenine, cytosine and thiamine. G-A-C and T. Arrange them correctly and you get genes. Arrange the genes correctly and you get the nucleus of a cell. And in the nucleus of a cell, you can make 
anything. All of life, all systems of life, are made up of genes. Venter's team took 10 years to achieve this, but they've correctly assembled the DNA and inserted it into a cell with its nucleus removed. The new cell booted up and lived and ate and excreted and reproduced. He hasn't created an entirely new organism from scratch yet, but also he hasn't merely rearranged or cut and paste genes from existing organisms. He's reproduced a natural organism synthetically and added a biological signature or watermark. This mark means that if you find a bacterium of this particular species and sequence it, you can tell if it's a natural one or one descended from Craig Venter's bacterium. Now, I went to a talk very recently, sponsored by Cosmos magazine in their Science on Tap panel series, and the panel was discussing synthetic biology. One of the first things to come up was the possibility of disaster. Anytime you're looking at, well, any potentially new technological power, in this case, the power of reproduction, you've got biology, you can reproduce, you can do new things. All the current ethical problems with genetic engineering extend much further with synthetic biology. Because not only can you insert genes from one species into another, but you can invent entirely new genes. You can create organisms that would never have been able to evolve in nature. So all that aside, what's being done and what can be done and what should be done? On the panel, after they'd gotten through all the doomsday scenarios, whether it was grey goo from nanotechnology or it's a synthetic biology equivalent or whether it was bioweapons used by the big powers to fight each other in war, or whether it was bioterrorism or biocrime, there's a lot of nasty stuff you can do with biology. It's been that way since we've been around. Back in the Middle Ages, people actually catapulted plague-ridden bodies across walls to infect the enemy. So what about the good stuff? At the panel, someone asked a question about wet printers. What's a wet printer? A wet printer is a printer that instead of printing letters on paper, will actually print out letters of nucleotides that can make genes. So the idea is that you get together the letters of the genetic alphabet, which get together to make genes in the same way that machine code, the ones and zeros, can get together to make programs, and you find a way to interface with this that doesn't break your brain, because people just don't usually program machine code directly. They use a higher level language. And then you create a gene or a sequence of genes or a whole system or a whole organism. So the question was asked, when will these wet printers exist? When can I create the structure of the DNA I want and instantiate it in a bacterium? And the answer from the panel was that they already exist in industry, very expensively and very large. Now, most machinery that changes the world starts out, whether it's a printing press, starts out as being very large and very expensive and not available to the ordinary punter. So that would seem to be a little bit of safeguard, of course, on the abuse. Only the elite can get to it, and they've already been vetted. So what do these elite scientists in synthetic biology do? Well, they write a little bit of code in an email. They email it to the company that has the wet printer, The company matches this code against its database of nastiness. 
to see whether or not any vile things could be created from this code, whether that's a plague or whether that's a poison or explosive or an acid or whatever nastiness might be possible. And then when they think it's probably okay, they instantiate it in a bacterium and ship the bacterium back to the researcher. So there's a system. And of course, the researcher will thoroughly simulate it in computational biology, in the models, before they ever look at doing it in reality. So they're making some efforts at making sure disasters don't happen. And I'm sure they're very open to any further suggestions of what they can do to stop disasters from happening. But what are the possibilities? Because it seems to me, once you've got a printer, once you've got an interface, I can understand how to put these things together and then I can tell the printer to do it. What could I do? Because after all, rapid prototyping of physical things is now becoming cheaper and cheaper. You can get a 3D printer that can make solid things out of plastic for you for $1,500 now, which is very cheap indeed. And DNA sequences have gone from millions of dollars to tens of thousands of dollars. And the price will keep on going down. So if the price of DNA sequencing can go down and the price, therefore, of wet printers will eventually go down. Eventually, wet printers will be available to anybody with the skill to use them. Now, before everybody jumps in their doomsday boats and worries about Armageddon and all the horrible things that people could create by accident and design, what about the good stuff? What fun things could you do? What would be nice to do? What would you like to do if you could access this technology? If you're someone who makes things, if you're an engineer, if you're a scientist, if you're a maker, and you're given access to a wet printer, what would you do? Considering, as I said, that all the criminal and all the military applications and all the ethical problems and all the environmental issues are taken care of, what about the good stuff? What's the the bright side? I was thinking, you could do all sorts of things. Let's say we're restricted to bacteria in the early stages. We can't immediately bring out our glow-in-the-dark pink unicorns. It seems to me that gut bacteria are an excellent source of hackable material for humans. If you want to modify humans, and let's face it, I do. So if I could modify my gut bacteria, and gut bacteria are very diverse. In fact, most of the cells in a human body are in fact gut bacteria of one species or another, and there are many different species there, so there's room for different ones. We could get gut bacteria to perhaps make medications or hormones. It can make insulin if you need insulin. It can make a whole range of medications. So instead of having to take it regularly, your bacteria makes it on a daily cycle. It might be able to boost your immune system and fight off infections, particularly intestinal infections. It might be able to reduce inflammation, which is a cause of all sorts of illnesses. You might be able to sense when there's dangerous things or things you need to know about in the food because your bacteria in your gut could give you a signal on detecting these things after you've ingested the water or the food. It could detect poisons and toxins. In fact, not only could it detect the toxins, but have a good actor as an extra liver and actually deal with the toxins. One of the things that DARPA is looking into, according to Hungry Beast on ABC, is developing super soldiers that can forage on the land, even when there's not much food around. In fact, when there's no food around. They want to have soldiers that can eat grass and leaves and bark from normally inedible sources. And if you had the right gut bacteria, you could do it. So there's lots of things you could do with your gut. 
The other thing, of course, is that there's all sorts of brain chemicals made in your gut. You've got a very large nerve ganglion down near your gut, and it talks to the bacteria, and the bacteria talk to it. So you could perhaps change your brain chemicals as well and improve your memory or improve your concentration. In fact, gently hack your own brain to function a little better. Of course, that's just the gut. We have, we've barely opened up the possibilities there. Further, of course, where else is the bacteria on the human body? Well, there's bacteria on your skin. So what could you do if you could engineer the bacteria that live on our skin? Well, for a start, you could induce melanin. You could have colour-changing bacteria. If you had colour-changing bacteria, the least thing you could do is you could have programmable tattoos, for example, that are completely removable or completely changeable at your whim. You could have ones that collect solar power and perhaps convert it to electricity for storage and a battery elsewhere or convert it to food or do all sorts of things. Who knows? Your imagination's limit. Perhaps you could sense different sorts of radiation with your skin. You could tell whether or not the UV was dangerous before it burned you. You could tell what sort of infrared is hitting you. There's all sorts of possibilities. So it seems to me that, yes, there are huge dangers to this technology, just as there were with genetic engineering. There's dangers to the environment, and there's possible dangers in the hands of criminals and of the military. But it seems to me that there's also enormous potential for doing good. There's enormous potential for healing people. There's enormous potential for helping the disabled. And there's enormous potential for making ordinary people as much more as they want to be. Look, there's bacteria. 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 You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria. Bacteria. Everything you touch. Bacteria. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. And Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take us out, here's Jonathan Colton with That Spells DNA. We start the story when Mom met Dad and they danced all night and he took wine they had but they rolled the dice and won your genome and you grew and you grew and one day you were you and you look like your father and mother if you're looking for someone convenient to blame you can take your pick it's one or the other dna RNA to the ribosome
look that's hidden inside you.